Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about another thing that's eating the world, VS Code and other cloud IDEs. Friends, we enjoy podcasting because we're passionate about computers and sharing the experience of running systems at scale with the next generation. Would you help us fulfill our mission and consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast or offering feedback? Contact us at feedback at operations.fm. So last week, we or last time, we talked about running traffic and things at home to do a zero-trust, beyond-corp-style network authentication thing. And part of my desire for getting that set up was I have this nice, powerful desktop in front of me with 64 gigs of RAM and 16 cores and all that stuff. But when I'm out on the road doing things, which does happen occasionally, I have an iPad. And I had an old iPad at the time. And that is really, really not a great environment to try to get any code written in. So somebody has taken VS Code, which is one of the modern kind of newfangled IDEs, and made it into a Docker container that you can run and then access from a web browser. And that intrigued me. But I realized <laughs> that, that intrigues me. Yeah, yeah but it's still trying to. I, I I realized that IDEs once you get past basic text editor stuff, IDEs are a hot, a contentious topic. We'll say um, a lot of people have a lot of feelings. They're a religion. Well, part so of this hits me. You know, if I can reference a friend of mine who has said for a very long time that. Even when we were on dial-up modems, the speed that we are attached to the internet is fast enough that we should never lose text that we type into the internet, type into an editor. Yet, isn't that what always happens when, you know, our browser crashes from the middle of ordering something off of Amazon? <laughs> or what, what browser are you using, Jack? How many times have you made a Jira ticket... And something in Jira has gone wrong or your browser has gone wrong and you lose that like, you know, arm length Jira write up you just did. So unless it's a very rare circumstance, I never type anything into a text input field in a web browser. I type it in a text editor somewhere and then paste it in because I don't trust web browsers to not screw me that way. (laughs) Because Um, Brendan has been under those thumb clamps before. Oh, yes. Um, and he has been twisted and altered beyond the shape of a mere human. But going back to the main topic, <laughs> I, I grew up on a Mac in terms of my computing life. And while everybody else was learning Vim and Ed and Nano and whatever else, I was using BBEdit. And BBEdit is still a very amazing text editor. It's Mac only, but it's phenomenal. And it was, I want to say in 96, it was able to open like two gigabyte text files without any problem. And for a graphical you know, a nice to use graphical interface program. It was pretty amazing. So I never got myself deep into using something like Vim as a complete integrated environment for writing code. I know that Jack, you probably have some feelings about this. Ken? My Vim story is, I don't think it's normal either. Um, I picked up and started using Vim when I started learning Linux in the nineties and it's always there. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I, I grew up learning Unix and Linux in the late nineties. Uh, so that, you know, ages me quite a bit. 
but I wasn't on, you know, a, a, a VT120 uh, trying to figure out how to navigate a really slow serial connection on a shared, you know, mainframe or something. Um, so, you know, error keys work plenty good. I've used error keys and Vim for ages rather than the more correct, you know, H, J, K, and L. Um, but I learned the basics to Vim, nothing super fancy, and it was always there. It always works. Yeah, My I mean... favorite feature is when you say, Vim, open that file, it does it. If you quit Vim, instead of tossing it into the background or suspending it, and you have to restart Vim, that these operations are not any faster or slower than each other, and the editor is just there. Well, and, and so that has kept me in it for years. Yeah, I mean, I dating myself even more, uh, being even older than Jack. When I started, there was no <laughs> graphical, there was no graphical environment to have anything else, and not even Vim, but VI was always there. At that point, Emacs was rarely there, unless somebody had added it, and so it was just what we used. I have since then used integrated IDEs that were married to the compilers and the co and the um, source code repos and everything else and they are awesome but they also take a lot of effort to get set up and if I need to edit a file <laughs> VI takes no setup I yeah, first I learned to code in the mid 90s and I used uh, Quick Basic, MS DOS Quick Basic, I think. And I used Turbo Pascal back in the olden days from Borland. And the IDEs both came with were really similar, really simple. I mean, think of that, you know, 25 by 80 column, you know, MS Works kind of text based interface. Yeah. And at that point, an IDE was nothing more than, you know, a fancy text editor with some keystroke hotkeys and I learned hotkeys and Vim carries that same that same style and speed and ease of use for me yeah, yeah I agree like I learned Vim because it's always there and I was doing Solaris administration and it's always there so you have to be able to edit files on on the environment you're working in but BB Edit in the late 90s had multi-file, multi-project, multi-folder, like regular expression find and replace, which was phenomenal in code diffing across, you know, directories and things. So, see, yeah, I could use Vim, but why would I? Yeah, that that was sort of my start is I uh, started off with just a regular text editor, right? So like in Linux, it was gedit, and then when I moved over to the Mac uh, in the early mid 2000s it was or at first just text edit and then i discovered textmate uh thanks to you know popular ruby on rails uh casts that made that i think helped make it really popular so i switched over to that but after a while i got tired of always using a gui and uh forced myself to learn vim and i haven't switched back since um until until recently with all this cloud editor stuff that I think we're going to get to later. I but. mean, there are two things that drive me up the wall. You screw up copy and paste 
or the text editor that I need to work in takes forever to load or super slow and laggy or doesn't respect super common hotkeys. Like, how do I get to the end of the line? And, yeah, and I think that was honestly the thing that really clicked for me with Vim was the the, the language Right, that to allow you to the, to move the cursor around and manipulate text with with um, combining keystrokes. Uh, to this day, I mean, even now with me using more and more of these uh, code editors at this point, the first thing I do is enable Vim bindings. Um, <laughs> if 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 an if an IDE at this point does not have a Vim bindings plugin, I will not. You no, know, you it. can run Bash in Vim mode. Absolutely. Well, I was getting ready to say, in, in, yeah. in my shell, I have set uh, VI mode, um, or whatever it is, uh, to, so that I can, instead of using the Emacs keystrokes or whatever it is to get to the beginning line or whatever, I, I use VI mo- the VI mode so that I can um, either use the VI com- key commands to manipulate text, or you know, if you do uh, visual mode, you can actually open up a, Vim, a VI editor and do a, a really help you out with multi-line uh, command. Yeah, one of, the nice things, one of the nice things about the Mac is that any, I want to say that any Cocoa app um, by default got Emacs key bindings. Yes. So any app in the system, you could use a standard set of basic text controls to like beginning, end of line, those kinds of things, which was really helpful. And it was completely undocumented. You had to know that it existed. But once you knew it was there, you're like, oh, I can just, Ooh, neat. Anywhere I go, I can use the same key bindings everywhere I am. That was kind of awesome. Yeah. I use i3 uh, window manager when I'm using Linux. And of course, it is very customizable for how you set up the, the key bindings uh, along with its defaults. But yeah, I adjust the key bindings so they're similar to them. Well, I think what everything we're saying is, though, GUIs are great, but it's awesome if you don't have to take your hands off the keyboard. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing, right? I mean, that's probably the reason why editors like Vim or or Emacs are still extremely popular is that they are very efficient. It's tough to, uh, you know, match that kind of speed, especially if you're manipulating text uh, or especially like recently, uh, just on a personal project, I was uh, trying to build a Jenkins image with um, Bazel and I was needing to copy and paste a lot of like SHAs and and H and URLs and just there was a lot of d- duplicative work where being able to easily like yank this out of uh, quotes and pa- pa- paste inside of these quotes and everything it was so quick to do that with Vim versus if I was just doing it in a regular editor with a mouse and trying to do even just doing you know control or uh, copy and paste commands it would have taken me longer. Yep. So the place where graphical editors win, though, for me at least, is when you are learning, you're digging into somebody else's large project and code completion and function declarations and auto auto documentation inlined is really helpful. So you can be relatively productive relatively quickly, see what the function signature takes, see what arguments you're passing where, um, find all the places where this function is actually called in the project so, and it does it in a visual style. Now, I have a lot of coworkers and friends who use IntelliJ, and I feel sorry for them because I hate IntelliJ with an absolute passion. Um, I don't know anybody who actually likes it. They just use it because it Eclipse, works for them. Eclipse, man, Eclipse. Come on, Eclipse. 
but I came around to VS Code a number of years ago. It was the Visual Studio Code, Microsoft project. And in the late 90s, I thought everything Microsoft did was evil. I really didn't like their editors. I didn't like really any, any product they made, honestly. But they've been doing some interesting things recently. And VS Code is lightweight enough that it doesn't take forever to start up. It does all this, the, the code syntax highlighting that I want. It shows me common errors as I go. So I spend less time, you know, round tripping down to build and compile. Which it automatically just throws the, hey, you're not using this right, right here with you. And it's super handy. And I've noticed with the folks I work with that over the last 12 months or so, every time somebody shares their screen, I see that they're working in VS Code. Yeah. And yeah. at this point, everybody seems to be in VS Code. Yeah, it's because it doesn't experience suck. as well. And it's, it keeps pushing at me that everybody can't be wrong. You should go look at this. And yes, they can. <laughs> I, I, I just haven't had the time and I don't, I'm not doing higher, higher level language as much because of my current position. And every time I look at trying to set it up, I'm going, all right, by the time I get this set up, I would have been long done with what I'm working on. <laughs> and so I just don't. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, and I think that's the reason it probably hasn't been beneficial for you yet is one, I think it needs to be a higher level language. Cause to your point, Brendan, I mean, I think, I think that's where these graphical interfaces shine. It's when you're looking at a code base, especially one that you're not familiar with that allows you, and I know them and, and other um, textual based editors do have plugins to allow you to, you know, when you hover over a function, you can do a command sequence to go select it. But Seeing it visually, tags are called tags. There, thank you, tags. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know that I know that they exist. I've never really done them because I've just I've never really tricked out my my Vim editor before. It's really I did try that Nerd Tree or whatever one time, and eh, I, I just didn't like it. So everybody's tried Nerd Tree, and you made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> but. Having since used a properly set up web-based IDE at my current job, I can tell you that when it's been set up correctly and it is set up to, you know, help you out with the languages you're working on, it is, I, I it's just, I don't know if I could go back to just using Vim anymore. I, I think I'm going to be stuck, still, I'm going to be using a web-based editor at this point for a while. And that's but exactly, it is in Vim mode. Well, that's exactly the the reason that I'm setting up the code server stuff for myself. So there's a there's a company that will obviously sell you the hosted VS Code thing, and they'll run the the backend for you on a cloud of your choice. But they also make a Docker container available. We'll throw a link in the show notes to it, and it has relatively modest requirements, you know, like one or two CPU cores and I think a gig of RAM, which for these kinds of things is pretty standard, unfortunately. And now I can sit on my iPad and I can code against my desktop. Same project, same Git stuff, same flow, same work, same checkouts, all those things. And when I hit compile, it's using my desktop wherever it is. So I can be at a, my neighbor's house, you know, working on something or showing him something while we're having dinner. And I'm not waiting for my iPad to, to get to work on things. Um, I will say that a fourth generation, you know, standard vanilla iPad everything's kind of slow so i don't recommend that 
Um, I have an iPad Pro on loan right now, which is pretty amazing and honestly is just as fast as loading up VS Code on my desktop in my office. So it's a really it's a really fancy solution that once you get it tricked out and working, it just works. And I think another thing that these uh, cloud editors offer, uh, and again, how, what I've, how I've seen it implemented, is that there's ways to uh, offer, and, and I know that Vim and other text editors have these kind of error checking and suggestions, but it's really nice when they're presented to you in a graphical way, and uh, there's ways to suggest maybe you should do that this way. And then there's uh, either a little spill of text or then possibly a way to link to see more. It's just, there's, there's more opportunities to present the data in an interesting way versus it being in a, either you have to do a command stroke to see a list of all of them, or, uh, you know, you have to wait until you run a command stroke versus in the GUI, it can be there as like a little indicator on the line or, you know, some other non-aggressive way. Yeah, as you're no, typing... don't get me wrong. I've I have worked as a, a developer in previous lives on high level languages with a graphical uh, editor with code completion and all that stuff, and it's awesome. When all that stuff is set up properly and it's working, it is fantastic, and it is such a an improvement on your productivity. It isn't free. It takes time. And I know we were discussing before we were recording on the difference in environments. I'm at a very, very small company. You guys are not. (laughs) Who's doing that work for me? Because I can tell you right now, it's me. Well, but but fortunately, though, with a lot of... With the size user base that some of these, uh, especially with VS uh, Code has behind it, and now with the modular nature of it, getting set up from zero to a you know well set up machine is not as task intensive as it used to be and you know you have friends on this podcast who can help you yeah. if you're having difficulty <laughs> because you know yes so you mentioned code completion a minute ago and the other really fascinating thing that's happening and this is not part of the hosted code server thing is the direction the cloud hosted IDEs are going and I think the most fascinating part of all of this has to be the GitHub Copilot stuff, which opens a lot of interesting questions oh, about the future of so our field. many questions. I'm, I'm actually surprised that GitHub slash Microsoft even started down this road or even opened it up. I mean, I, I'll just be honest with you. I'm very shocked that especially Microsoft would be like, yeah, we're, we're not worried about getting sued. Let's just do it. And, and for those who don't know um, the code copilot stuff essentially does machine learning, looking at all of the code in GitHub that's open source or this public and has built essentially a code recommendation engine for you that while you're typing, it will suggest function names and fill out boilerplate code in that function as you're going, which is, crazy now i haven't actually i haven't actually used it i'm on the wait list still waiting for my invite to roll around because i know they've got a limited number of of testing slots at this point but it is fascinating yeah didn't they actually already have a problem i mean and and again i'm i really haven't been paying attention to this i should have probably researched it before but didn't they have an issue where 
where where you mentioned they were only looking at open source projects that that might not have been a hundred percent true. The legalese around how they've <laughs> how they've trained the machine learning models and how the copilot thing kind of works in general to me is really fascinating. Um, if you read read the uh, end user license agreement, uh, whatever you the is for a GitHub. There's phrasing in there where you agree to allow GitHub to use your code to do whatever GitHub sees fit to help improve and better their own services. So if you if you click through that EULA, then you've given uh, GitHub uh, permission to take your code and feed it into their machine learning models. And if your code is hosted elsewhere and is open source, you know, there's a little bit more of an argument to be said there as, you know, does this equate copying? Um, but, you know, we went through the whole GPL v3 uh, and patent stuff on open source licenses. In my point of view, not that long ago, although I guess it's been 10 or 15 years. But one thing that I see in the future is, you know, how we change that licensing model to account for for machine learning uh, models and training based on the open source code that we generate. So that's that's really a fascinating bit of of that whole problem, as as well as uh, code ownership. Um, if this thing is writing code that you're using, who owns the code? Yeah, does yeah, that exactly come out of the, the the code that it's copying and pasting from its machine learning algorithms from some other project? Is it partially copyrighted by the the owner of of GitLab Copilot. Now the licensing stuff for GitLab Copilots is pretty cool. Um, they treat Copilot as a code and they're very clearly state you have owner over your code and that like a compiler uh, the Copilot is a tool that you use. But I definitely see competing versions of this in the future where licensing terms are going to be more interesting. Yeah, I can't wait for Oracle's entry to this field. <laughs> That's, well, you oh know the God. big three will have their own their own offering in this space, yeah. and you'll watch them fight it out. And I think that will be the really interesting part. Yeah, one of the other things that I found, there was a, a NYU study done on code generated by the Code Copilot, and something like 40% of the code it suggests has active security vulnerabilities because of the data set that the thing was trained on. So you may not want to just blindly trust the code that it suggests for you. What? Uh, you better have used your code? Yeah. You can't just let it write it for you? It's like you? pair programming like has a thing for a reason. It's an old stack sort joke from XKCD about you just sort of go through stack overflow answers until you find a sorting, a sorting algorithm that's fast enough for you. <laughs> that's how most people do it. And I'll throw a link to um, the XKCD and the article about the NYU stuff into the show notes as well. But GitHub stuff is really neat. It's based on the OpenAI Cortex project, uh, link in the show notes. Um, and I really like the company that Microsoft is turning into that is supportive of the development community. And... You know, I definitely grew up same time Brendan did, where Microsoft was kind of the big evil company. But the way they've embraced the 
the open source and development community because they had to to compete. Uh, yeah, um, I was about to really say this was made Microsoft into a company I'm kind of cheering for. This was not out of the grace of their heart or because yeah. they they they're they're caring for the community. This was in order to continue being relevant. I mean, if you can't if you can't sell a developer a machine they can use to write code on or some method to write code on that's useful to that developer, I don't see how you can make a good case or you can sell those machines to the general public. But I'm kind of weird. Well, so. but I mean, think about it. They have seen that any of the large internet businesses that people interact with on a daily basis are they are not running Windows as their core infrastructure. They are running some form of Linux, Unix, some open source uh, stack from top to bottom. And, you know, Windows has been relegated to the IT department where uh, a lot of people still use them for uh, email or calendaring or documents, uh, possibly even um, oh, uh, collab- collaboration. Yeah, exchange, you know, but... Um, in ter- but but beyond that, they are not really involved anymore. So they have to uh, oh, yeah. try to reach that next generation so that they and can... And they did that first with Azure. Yeah. And I've always been blown away that Azure is number two in the cloud world. And because of my own history with Microsoft, I would not usually give them much time of day. But they offer a very compelling and competing... Uh, Linux and open platform to use and Kubernetes. Sorry, well, I mean, Microsoft. I Microsoft broke say. IBM all those years ago by saying the hardware isn't the important thing; the software is. And Google almost broke Microsoft by saying the operating system isn't the important thing; it's the services we sell you on top of it that are the important okay. thing that we do over the internet. And Microsoft has finally figured that out. They're finally doing service-based offerings that are compelling and interesting, and it's not just. How do we push more copies of Windows and Office down your throats? Azure has come a long way, and I'm sorry if you've if you work in it and you use it. Yeah, there's some there's some really some compelling features in there, um, and they're you know they're getting market share because of it. And yeah, but I mean, are they getting market share because they truly have differentiating features or or because, hey, if you use, you know, if your uh, business needs Exchange or a hosted AD, if you run it in, in uh, Azure, it's going to be the cheapest. Yes, both. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is both. There are some things in there. Um, I was having this discussion recently with somebody. I, if you've used Azure resource groups, God, I would kill for AWS to do something like resource groups. Um, it's kind of like the idea of uh, in AWS of accounts, real hard differentiation of your resources away from other ones. Um, but it's much softer in the sense that, you know, in an account and everything else. You'd have to use it to see it, but it's fantastic as far as keeping things isolated from each other. Um would love it in AWS. Also, hey, yeah, if you're if you're an AD shop, it's a whole lot easier to integrate all your stuff with AD when you're in Azure. So you know it is both. They have they have things that you're not going to find elsewhere, and it interoperates with your existing stuff in AD well. But again, it's all services. Um, 
and Microsoft's like Satya Nadella has really helped them figure that out. And Microsoft's a cool company now. Like I'm interested in what they're doing, and I would not be, I would not be close to working for them at this point. Whereas years ago <laughs> yeah. they were on the absolute was, never list. Yeah. yeah, I was just about to say the same thing. I said I would not yep. instantly turn down a interview from Microsoft, which is weird to to say right now. Yeah, they used to be on the instant delete list, if, and now they're not. If I, if I heard from them, yeah, we'll talk. So back to, to code editors and cloud editors. Um, did any of you ever use SubEtha Edit back in the day? No. No. It was a Mac text editor that had one phenomenal feature, which was it would use zero-conf networking, the bonjour stuff, and have shared live simultaneous editing of documents. And it was a rich text editor, so you could do like bold and italic and whatever. But this is in 2002, 2003 kind of days. And it was phenomenal for conferences. So you'd go to a conference and everybody would open up Sabitha Edit and then you'd have shared notes for the speaker session. And this is before Google Docs and this is before all those other things have happened. But there have been other cloud IDEs as well that implement some of these pieces. Um, cloud9, which I think previously was Mozilla's Project Bespin, um, is now I think part of AWS, is the, what, what backs the AWS Live Code Editor on their site for various tools and, and bits. Um, what have you put Thea into the notes? I'm not sure what that is. Yeah, so GCP has their own cloud editor, uh, and it's based on Thea, which is from Eclipse, which is a... Thea is a, is Eclipse's answer to Microsoft's VS Code. Um, so apparently, uh, I guess Google has decided to use Thea instead of VS Code for their cloud editor. But but GCP has a cloud editor just like AWS does. It actually integrates in with GCP's um, Git repos. So you can, uh, very similar to how GitHub does things, you can click on a file, edit it in the cloud, and commit and do all those things just from a, you know, from a web browser. And actually, if folks aren't aware, if you are using a modern browser and you're in GitHub, I think it's hitting command period, or even just period, will flip you into a VS Code editor for that bit of code. Yeah. And it's kind of awesome. Really yeah, handy freaking. for quick edits. Yeah, so when you're building your website... <laughs> exactly. Or making documentation updates, because our documentation is in Markdown, right? Yeah. Yeah. Documentation? <laughs> I... I have this thing about being able to write documentation in a text editor and manage it in a text editor. And of course, everybody seems to use Confluence now, which is not that. And anything that I can use to push back to using a text editor for my documentation. So it's easy. I like using Markdown. My one problem with Markdown is when you're linking to other pieces of documentation. Yeah. There is no easy way to fix it when somebody changes what you're pointing at. Somebody else edits, renames, moves, whatever. And that's frustrating. Do y'all have reasonable solutions for that yet? Let's just use Go Links. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's that search and replace function in, in Vim that you haven't found yet. <laughs> <laughs> I found it. <laughs> Colon S percent whatever, right? I mean, it's Vim. You can't exit Vim, so you just smack your head on the keyboard enough times. And if you're lucky, you smack your head button on the keyboard just right to find the regex search and replace. And, and then you know it. 
with an infinite number of head wax, you'll eventually get it. <laughs> or you won't need it anymore because you'll have it rhymed. Uh, yeah. So I have... All, uh, all, all that jackalotter is, no, no one's found a good solution to that. Okay. Um, to incidentally, exiting I them, have yeah. one of those magic keypads for the iPad, and it's really good. Like the, the whole case and it, it sits in your lap well and sits in desk well and all those. It's great. Except it has no escape key. And I found myself SSH into a server editing a file. Oh. And I was like, hang on, how do I... And there is no escape key. without escape? I don't know. And uh, all those I... new hipster keyboards that want to move the escape key or put it on a different layer or whatever. Um, you know, or Mac that put it on a touch bar. <laughs> yeah, and, I, yeah, I had to message Jared and ask him, how do I get an escape key on this thing? Uh, also in a pinch, uh, Control-C will let you get out of uh, insert mode in, in Vim. Yeah, I did not know with that. With 30 plus years of muscle memory of yeah. the pinky just shooting up to escape. No. It would take too long to adapt. Or remapping escape well, to, uh, to caps lock because no one uses caps lock. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Don't do that either. No. Controls remap <laughs> map to. Con- uh, I mean, caps lock <laughs> is mapped to control. Actually, I map it to to the hyper key. So you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um. The only negative with doing control C and Vim though is if you're doing like um, like I, I'll do a lot of things with like uh, control V or whatever where you can do like a you know a, a long vertical line so you can insert more characters all down the line. Uh, if you do that and then do control C and instead of escape, it basically cancels the operation instead of <laughs> completing it and duplicating it. So that's the only negative where if you're trying to do if you do control C, it won't actually function much like the escape key will. Sounds like you need to find a keyboard with escape on it. Oh, no. I mean, so I have the same. I have the magic keyboard as well. I've remapped the key down in the bottom left-hand corner. That's like a little globe. I've remapped that to escape. And it's easier than you think to to relearn that as long as the key is actually mapped in and it works. Yep. Yeah. No, I know. it's. You'll get used to it quick enough. We should do an episode on keyboards at some point. Maybe again. <laughs> um but I am surprised at how quickly I adapt to all the different keyboards that I use. Isn't our like whole, you know, sub underlying meta theme, you know, keyboards, keyboards and text they editors do come up with quite a bit. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We'd also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in overcast, Apple podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Can you hear my IBM Model M? <laughs> yeah, from like three blocks away. Yeah. The Unicomp is louder. <laughs>